This is The Weekly for Friday, July 26th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The nation's debt is rapidly approaching $23 trillion. That is 1,000 times $1 billion, or put another way, a trillion seconds ago would amount to no less than 31,710 years. And the cost of the nation's debt per citizen, an estimated $68,000. A lot of money, a sea of red ink. We break it all down with Robert Bixby. He is the longtime executive director of the Concord Coalition, a bipartisan advocacy group with a primary goal of putting our nation's fiscal house in order. Our conversation in just a moment. But first, from 1992, co-founder Paul Songus. He's a former Democratic senator from Massachusetts and one-time candidate for the presidency. Good morning. I think the clock behind us tells the story. What it talks about is a generation that is not being responsible to its young. And today we are forming the Concord Coalition to take back the future of this country so that our children and their children can live the kind of life that I think Americans deserve. Yesterday I was at the Concord Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts and thought about all those people who many, many years ago decided this country was worth fighting for and were prepared to give up their lives. What we are here to talk about today is the same kind of dedication to the future. Those comments in the summer of 1992 by former senator, former Democratic presidential candidate Paul Songus of Massachusetts, forming the Concord Coalition. And joining us in our studios is Bob Bixby. He is the executive director of the coalition. Back then, the nation's debt was $5 trillion. Today, it is approaching $23 trillion. What's happened? Well, uh, for a while, things went pretty well. Uh, People forget that during the 90s and up to the early 2000s, the budget deficit that we were warning about back in 1992 came down and turned into a surplus. And we actually had a, a budget surplus for four years. But since basically 2001, starting around 2002, Uh, Congress really has, and subsequent presidents, lost their way uh, quite substantially on fiscal responsibility. Didn't start all at once, just bit by bit. You you begin to lose some of the um, things that you put in place, like PAYGO rules and caps, uh, discretionary spending caps, begin to erode, and uh, people begin to uh, get comfortable with deficits and and now, of course, it's just totally abandoned any sense of fiscal responsibility at all. So let's talk about some of the recent headlines as Congress approves raising the debt limit and adding potentially another trillion dollars in government spending and in the nation's debt. Right. I think this last budget deal is emblematic of what's happened. Uh, not only the budget caps being raised, but they're being allowed to expire. They were in place for another two years and in, instead of, you know, if they're going to raise them, fine, you can you do a deal with that. But they should be offset somehow, maybe extend the caps longer or be part of some longer plan to bring fiscal responsibility. But they just raise the caps and then kill them. So there really isn't any mechanism in place to enforce f- fiscal responsibility, even in a pretend sense. So the caps really have been 
ineffective because they just simply raise them. They don't abide by their own self-imposed spending uh, deadlines. Yeah, what happened was uh, the caps go back to a so-called super committee back in 2011. There's a long history here, but but the caps were originally imposed because they were only to go in place if uh, Congress, the super committee, failed to reach a big deal, a budget deal that would lower the debt uh, over the long term. They failed, so the caps, uh, there was a, a, a certain amount of cap that was enacted. And then if the super committee failed, it was supposed to go even lower, which was called sequestration. So those lower caps were, were supposed to go into effect in 2020 and 2021. And three times before that, they had raised those caps. So you're right. They, every time they, they just struck a, about a two-year deal to raise the caps – and the reason it became so dire this year was because they had never raised the 2020 and 21 caps. So spending, actual spending was going up, but they still had to face this fiscal cliff of caps that if they re- remained in place would have forced a very steep cut. What's interesting is the formation of the Concord Coalition included a Democrat, Paul Songus, and a Republican, Warren Rudman. What made this coalition so unique, this partnership between these two former senators? Well, that alone would be very unique today, <laughs> almost unprecedented. But I think the uh, the message that they wanted to send as a bipartisan pair was that the the growth of the debt and the budget deficits, fiscal responsibility in general, is not a partisan issue. It's really a generational issue. And... Uh, in some senses, an economic uh, patriotism issue. I mean, they really thought of it as investing in the future and running huge budget deficits was not responsible um, or, or economically viable for the for the long term. So they wanted to send a message that Democrats and Republicans needed to cooperate on these issues. At that same event with the U.S. debt clock in the background in 1992, here is what former Republican Senator Warren Rudman told reporters. We believe it's time for the American citizens to do that. that there are many special interest groups in this country, but there is one overwhelming special interest group. Those are the people who work for a living today, who care about their future, and don't want to see the American dream slip through their hands. To that cause, we dedicate ourselves. Thank you very much. That from 1992, former Republican Senator Warren Rudman of New Hampshire. And today, based on estimates from The Washington Post and others, we are spending upwards of $350 billion a year interest alone on the nation's debt. That's a very important dynamic to keep track of because if you look at the projections for the budget, the fastest growing item becomes interest on the debt because... When you run up these big deficits, it adds to the debt. That adds to the cost of servicing the debt. And uh, then it de- really it depends on what interest rates are as to how much the government is paying on its debt. But within 10 years, uh, we're projected to spend almost a trillion dollars on, on interest payments. And as soon as next year, more interest, uh, we're paying more in interest than we are for Medicaid at the federal level. And by 2025, I think we're projected to spend more in interest than we are on all of our defense programs. So, uh, you know, it's like somebody that's trying to live off of their credit cards making the minimum payment. Eventually, it's the interest payments that uh, catch up to you. 
But let me underscore that point. Approaching a trillion dollars interest on the debt, that is before you spend a nickel on anything else. That's right. And it doesn't buy anything. It's paying for your failure to pay for the things that you wanted to do earlier. Um, and so this is, you know, the American people have to come to grips with this as well as the politicians. We have put in place a series of spending programs that is way more than we appear to be willing to pay for. And the result is these huge deficits. And uh, look, if it's, you're talking about one year or two years or something like that, uh, you know, you could say, well, you know, we can afford it. Well, if you're if you're a young person, you're looking at projected debt that is so large, you think, you've got to be thinking, what is this going to do to my future? Because it's going to limit the uh, economic opportunities. Eventually, the debt will uh, have a uh, harmful effect on, on the economy, and it certainly will have a harmful effect on the budget and limit the choices that future generations will have. We are talking with Robert Bixby. He is the executive director of the Concord Coalition. Does Washington care? Do politicians care today about this issue? Well, I would have to say emphatically no. I mean, it's just it's it's shocking to me how little people in either party care about the future when it comes to the budget, uh, the debt and the economy. Everything is so short term that uh, and, and like this intense focus on this year's budget deal, uh, they're paying no attention to the long term. And I, I, I've never seen it this bad. What will change? How will it change? I think, I, I, I hope it does change because, because what I'm worried about is, is there's no big bad crisis, no big bang moment, uh, but you just have a slow erosion of our economy and uh, a, a declining standard of living, a declining place in the world, trying to carry all this debt. So I would, I, I don't know exactly what would happen. I mean, you can think of who would, you know, you'd say, well, nobody's going to finance our debt if it gets to be that big. Right now, the rest of the world seems happy to buy our bonds because they're having problems of their own, and, and the U.S. Treasury bonds are still considered a safe investment. Now, if the government decided to default on the debt limit, for example, and the, you might get the rest of the world thinking maybe it's not such a safe bet after all. Uh, you know, we'll see. If interest rates really go up, uh, that will make servicing the debt much more important, uh, much more expensive. But I think it's really younger people that need to take the lead here and uh, think about what this is doing to their future. And what it's doing is limiting their choices and making the, the economy for the future much worse. And interest rates will go up at some point. We don't know when, but it's apparent that they will increase down the road. Sure. We've been, we've been benefiting, the federal government has, from very low interest rates on the debt. And uh, if the interest rates went up back to what was considered normal in the, in the pre-Great Recession time, You'd still you'd be adding another you know one point five to two trillion dollars to the to the debt over over ten years just by interest costs alone. The, the budget the budget is very sensitive to interest rates and and healthcare costs. Those are the two big variables. I'm curious, how do we compare with other countries? Include in terms of the overall debt. Overall debt, it's pretty high. 
uh, where we have an advantage is that we also have a bigger economy. So uh, if you know you look at we're, we're able to handle a larger debt to GDP ratio than other countries do, um, and that that's an advantage in one sense, but it also is produced a certain hubris. By that's clearly what's happening now is that a lot of politicians are saying, "Well, what the heck? Um, we can, we can we can get away with it. The rules don't apply to us." And I think you start thinking that way, and you're in for a come up in at some point. Well, to that point, the hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle. This is what candidate Barack Obama told supporters July 2008 as he was running for president in Fargo, North Dakota. The problem is, is that the way Bush has done it over the last eight years is to take out a credit card from the Bank of China in the name of our children, driving up our national debt from $5 trillion for the first 42 presidents, number 43 added $4 trillion by his lonesome, so that we now have over $9 trillion of debt that, that we are going to have to pay back. $30,000 for every man, woman, and child. That's irresponsible. It's unpatriotic. That from candidate Barack Obama and Bob Bixby, it doubled during the Obama years and is currently expected to double and then some under President Trump. Yes. Uh, what happened to President Obama was, uh, you know, he took office uh, just after the economy tanked. So fiscal responsibility wasn't on anybody's uh, priorities at that time because the priority was to get out of the recession. And in those circumstances, uh, running high deficits is is justified. Uh, so I give Obama a little bit of a break for the huge spike in deficits early in, in his term uh, because it was a, you know, it was done specifically to fight the, uh, the recession. Uh, in, the, in the second term, uh, the deficits slowly began to come down uh, and the, the and he the, he did make some efforts with uh, John Boehner to try to reach a, a big deal, and this is kind of where this is kind of connects to where we are now because at the around 2010 there was a Bull Simpson commission. President Obama appointed a bipartisan commission to come up with some sort of a deficit reduction long term the long term plan to put the budget on a sustainable path, and they. Uh, did issue a report, and he had a choice of whether or not he wanted to really back it or not. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't really give it his his full endorsement. Uh, Paul Ryan was very much against it. Uh, he was on the commission, and he pretty much sank it in the in the House. They they had different objections to it, but I think it's it was a real missed opportunity there if Paul Ryan had been able to put aside some of his uh, ideological objections and Barack Obama had been able to face down some of the folks in his own party, you might have had a, a deal. That that was the moment. So they failed. Uh, they came up with uh, the super committee that I talked about before, and even that process has now played out. And there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing on the horizon 
now to take its place. In the 1960s, uh, historians criticized Lyndon Baines Johnson for the so-called guns and butter, increasing the military, also increasing domestic social programs. Today, we have an increase in military spending. We have an increase in government spending. And we have a huge tax cut. Yeah. It, it, this is guns and butter and uh, chocolate sauce on, on top. I mean, it's just it, it's an irrational uh, economic budget policy. You can see how, why it's popular politically, but this is what hard choices are all about, and there's nobody willing to do that. There are several structural factors at work here that, that I want to underscore because even if Congress maintained discipline on the budget caps, for example, suppose they just enacted those budget caps and let the, the cuts go into effect, we would still be in deep, deep trouble. The CBO's uh, forecast, you know, issued earlier this year, assumes that those budget caps would hold, uh, and and still it's on an unsustainable path. The, the debt goes from about uh, 78 percent of GDP now to close to 100 percent within 10 years. Uh, that's assuming that the budget caps actually held. And the reason why is that those caps only control about 30% of the budget. Most of the budget is mandatory spending, by which I mean programs like Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid that pay out automatically, plus interest on the debt, which is, you put those together and it's around 70% of the budget. Moreover, those are the things that are growing because you've got the baby boomers uh, in their retirement years now. So things like Social Security and Medicare are simply more expensive simply because of the number of beneficiaries. So the aging of the population and rising healthcare costs is driving these budget deficits and it's affecting the economy because more workers are retiring. So if you look at things like the labor force growth and uh, what's this doing to productivity, underlying factors, you're seeing projections of slower economic growth and it's because of the changing demographics. And what worries me a lot is that politicians and the public focus so much on the year-to-year -year spending totals on appropriations bills and that sort of thing that they fail to see the bigger picture, which is we're getting older and the big spending increases are driven by the increased number of, of beneficiaries for the big programs, plus the uh, rising cost of health care. But, Bob Bixby, if you could explain that point, because we pay federal income taxes and we pay into Social Security. So why is that a factor in the nation's debt? Don't we pay into Social Security? Isn't that self-sustaining or is it unsustainable based on the number of baby boomers who are set to retire? Well, that's a very good point, because I think with the public, I think a lot of people assume just what you said is that, well, we pay our payroll taxes and seniors pay premium for Medicare Part B and Part D. The problem is that the income from those taxes and premiums is not enough to pay the benefits that are going out. So Social Security on a cash-in, cash-out basis uh, runs about an $80 billion deficit, and that'll be going up. Now, for years, we had a Social Security surplus. Uh, the so-called lockbox. Right, yeah, exactly. And the Social Security system still has access to a trust fund, which is, which is treasury bonds. But, but the thing is, that's money that we owe ourselves. So it's the 
Social Security Commissioner going to the Treasury Secretary and saying, pay up, and the Treasury Secretary will do that, but he's got to get the cash from somewhere. Uh, so right now he goes out and borrows from the public. So, yeah, the bottom line is that, you know, Medicare premiums only pay for about a quarter of the, the cost of Part B and Part D. The payroll tax is a little bit short on what's needed for Part A. So that's why those programs do contribute to the budget deficit, even while they have their own dedicated resources. Let me add another voice to the conversation, and this from Senator Rand Paul, who this past week was one of two Republican senators who voted against the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund in large part because of the the long-term amount of money that was going to be spent. He also supported that big tax cut, and yet last year did not support raising the debt limit. This is what he told Fox News. Well, I think we spend too much money. I mean, this year the deficit will be close to $800 billion. When I ran for office, I promised voters that I wouldn't continue to add to the debt. Uh, we have a $20 trillion debt. I don't think we should keep spending money this fast. The spending bill that will come before us will actually exceed the spending caps. So I will introduce a budget point of order that says we're breaking our own rules here, guys. You know. Year after year, Congress will set their own self-imposed rules, spending caps, and we keep busting those caps and the deficits keep getting bigger. I think it's inexcusable. So I'll I'll be a no vote because I'm not going to vote to continue to put the country further into debt. First, your reaction to those comments. Well, I think that uh, I think that there's a problem on both sides of the ledger. I mean, I think that if you look at the spending, there's clearly not the desire on the part of the public uh, or to, to enact the kind of spending uh, restraint that, that Senator Paul would do, uh, I think that the enacting a big tax cut in the face of these huge deficits and with the economy growing is the way it has been was a, a bad idea, particularly doing it on a, on a partisan basis because it makes it dip more difficult to get a, uh, a, a, an overall agreement later on. So and, and then as far as the debt limit is concerned, look, I, I am a fierce deficit hawk, 27 years somewhat with the Concord Coalition. Uh, I don't like the debt limit. It's a very bad idea. Because? It's a, it's a hard dollar cap which has no economic uh, – it, it has no economic significance. And every time you know we get – it, all it does, it doesn't prevent the government from racking up debt. What it does is prevent the government from paying for the debt that it's already racked up. And uh, I would like to see the debt limit uh, either eliminated or reformed in some way. I'd prefer to see it reformed in some way. So I, uh, it would be a more rational thing than a hard dollar cap, uh, which really doesn't make uh, any sense. Let's go through a couple of quick items. First of all, the debt versus the deficit. What's the difference? Well, the the deficit is the annual shortfall between spending and, and revenues, uh, and all of those deficits add to the national debt, which also includes things like the Social Security Trust Fund, which has obligations that are owing in the future. And with regard to our debt, how much is owned by foreign countries approximately? It's about 40 percent. It fluctuates a little bit from year to year, but uh, it's not – people sometimes say, well, you know, the debt, we just owe it to ourselves. Uh, that's not true. Uh, a lot of it is owed to foreign countries. And often callers will say on the C-SPAN networks, hey, we can just print more money. Why not? 
Uh, I guess you can do that, but it's a it's an economically foolish thing to do because you're just inflating the currency and you're sending a signal that you're not serious about um, uh, your fiscal obligations. So it's a, it's a bad idea. During the Bush-Cheney years, then-Vice President Dick Cheney was quoted as saying, the debt doesn't matter. In a 2013 interview with CNN's Jake Tapper, he explained what he meant. Can you square the two, the, the concerns about deficits now versus during the Bush-Cheney administration? Sure. Well, the, uh, at the time that um, is referred to in the O'Neill book was back at the beginning of the uh, Bush administration. It was time, frankly, we had surpluses. And uh, the issue was whether or not we could both uh, build up military force at the same time that we were concerned about deficit spending. And my point was that Ronald Reagan had done exactly that, that he had run a deficit in order to build up our military capability back in the early 80s. And uh, it proved a, a remarkable decision on his part. And to cut taxes both under and Reagan to cut and taxes at the same time. So the, uh, uh, I, I'm not opposed under certain circumstances to running deficits. The debt is another problem, and we've gotten to the point now where, especially because of entitlement programs, but because it really hasn't been much done by way of trying to restrain spending, we now have you know trillion-dollar uh, deficits every year and a $17 trillion debt that we're passing on to our kids and grandkids. That concerns That from a CNN interview and a couple of points. First of all, that uh, surplus came from the agreement in large part by then-President Bill Clinton and then-House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Of course, we had 9-11, which changed so much. Your response? Well, I, I would uh, agree with one part of that, which is that there are times when deficits don't matter. You have to respond to military challenges. You have to respond to economic uh, hardships uh, like the Great Recession. And in those circumstances, deficits are, are, are understandable. Uh, what you want to have and what we don't have now is a sustainable long-term fiscal policy that allows for deficits in short times, but in good times you should be running a surplus. What's happening now, and which is very unusual, is that we're running an increasingly large deficit and debt in a strong economy without major military expenditures overseas, like a, you know, a major war. This is unprecedented, and uh, it there's no plan to deal with it, hardly even a recognition that it's happening. And, you know, when you hear politicians, the, the, the clips that, that you've played, uh, you hear the kind of hypocrisy of, of not wanting to make any choices. Uh, you know, Republicans want tax cuts, so those are good. So, so it's got to be done on the spending side, and Democrats are going to say— no, it's those Republican tax cuts that are getting us in trouble. We don't want to cut, you know, good programs like Social Security and Medicare, which everybody likes, so we're not going to cut those. Uh, everybody wants to keep up defense spending because it's, uh, you know, they, national defense is important. Uh, so, but you can't, if you have an unsustainable situation, you can't take things off the table like that and come to any sort of an agreement that's going to solve the problem. So what I worry about is right now, unlike Paul Songus and Warren Rudman, who realized that you had to make compromises between Democrats and Republicans, you have Democrats and Republicans saying, I won't compromise, which is tantamount to saying, I won't solve this problem. 
I want to come back to that point. But but again, the double standard, because Republicans very critical of the spending during the Obama years, especially when the Democrats had control of the House. And yet in the first two years of the Trump administration, they had the White House, they had the Senate and they had the presidency and no action on that. That's right. And and uh, they're also quite hypocritical on the debt limit. One of the reasons I don't like it is that they they use it for their own advantage to attack the administration uh, that wants to raise the debt limit. And, you know, President Obama voted against raising the debt limit when he was in the Senate and then said when he was president, he wouldn't even negotiate on the subject because it was too important. I sometimes get the the, 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 the mental picture here of uh, two choruses and they just sort of switch music and, and lyrics uh, depending upon who's in charge. And so it's a little bit difficult to, to keep track of sometimes. So how do you bring down the nation's debt? If you could sit down with leaders of both parties and the president and give them a blueprint, a recipe, a plan to do that, what has to happen? I think that uh, Simpson-Bowles was actually on the right track. I was on a similar commission with Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici with the Bipartisan Policy Center. You first have to say there are no preconditions. Everything is, is on the table. Then you have to look at some agreement that would reduce the cost of our long-term entitlement programs, particularly on health care, because that's the fastest-growing part. Social Security is a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, and then you have to look at the tax code and say, how can we raise more revenue without overly affecting, harming economic growth? Because we're going to need more revenue than we have in the past because of the older population. So those those are the major things that would need to be on the table. I do support uh, uh, spending caps. Um, they just need to negotiate how it would, uh, um, you know, what what sort of a realistic level there would be. But let me let me throw in two other things that aren't strictly fiscal issues. Uh, we have a real problem with uh, labor force growth. I mean, because of the retirement of the baby boomers, you look at the economic projections. A lot of it is. Uh, the slower growth projections are because of the changing demographics. I think they were on the right track a few years ago with a comprehensive immigration reform uh, bill that uh, would take in more people, uh, perhaps with a focus on economic uh, factors. Uh, the Senate bill uh, that the, the passed a few years back uh, was really, I think, headed in the right direction. It never got a vote in the House. But I'd like to see them re-engage on that because I think it would overall help the economy. Uh, and I think that we need to do more investment at the federal level. The federal budget, uh, very, very little of the federal budget now goes to investment. We used to have a lot more of the budget go for investment. And it's not just infrastructure. It's things like uh, new technologies, you know, R&D. Uh, that would help the economy grow and help productivity. So the key factors are slowing the cost of health care, increasing the labor force, increasing productivity, uh, coming up with a solvency package for Social Security. I think those are the big items and and a tax code that brings in more revenue than it does now, but uh, I wouldn't do it by just raising rates. I'd, I'd cut back on some of the things called tax expenditures, loopholes, credits, deductions, exclusions. The tax code looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, and, and it is inefficient, and, and it contributes to the impression that it's unfair because people are always thinking somebody else is getting a break that they're not getting. So I would I would flatten that. Uh, and I'm not just talking about a flat tax. I'm saying I would, I would 
close uh, a lot of those loopholes. And if you do that, you can actually lower rates and, and still bring in uh, revenue to, to help reduce the budget deficit. But here is what I think is the looming question, and you've touched on this earlier. Can we get there? Will we have the political appetite in this country at some point to do this? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I have to th- be optimistic about that or uh, I I would give up. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't want to do that. I hear Paul Songus and Warren Rudman still ringing. Uh, they're gone, but I, I'm still here. <laughs> Some other folks from Concord. So we're not giving up. It's not the time to throw in the towel. But I have to say uh, the political situation is, stuff, is such that I really – can't envision anything coming together anytime soon. That's why I, I turn to the American people and say, I think that, you know, Songus and Redmond said this has to take place outside of Washington. And I, I, I believe that, you know, I, I really think it's going to have to come from the American people and particularly younger people that have to look into the future, look at what we're doing to their future and saying, stop. So to those millennials, your message is what? Get in the game. Uh, what is happening in Washington with fiscal policy is detrimental to your future. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. You're not going to have any sort of a future to worry about. There won't be any choices because there'll be so much debt piled up. The economy will be so hampered. And you really won't be able to do that much about it because there'll be a bunch of 90-year-old baby boomers like me hanging around uh, that, uh, you know, you really can't cut off payments to them at that point. So we're, we, we really – the situation is a lot more critical than it may appear to be because uh, you really need to phase in changes uh, now over a several-decade period. For our listeners and viewers interested in this topic, more information online at concordcoalition.org. Bob Bixby, the executive director, we thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online at cspan.org, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.